This is Brian Eisenberg, co-author of Be Like Amazon, Even a Lemonade Stand Can Do It. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. This episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2017 this September. I'm going to be there. How about you? Content Marketing World is the one event where you can learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry, including several authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. You will leave the conference with all the materials you need to take a content marketing strategy back to your team and to implement a content marketing plan that will grow your business. To register and get the best price, do two things. First, go to marketingbookpodcast.com and click on the Content Marketing World banner Make sure to go through marketingbookpodcast.com so they'll know I sent you. Seriously, there's a bottle of scotch in it for me for everyone who registers through marketingbookpodcast.com. Then, for the lowest price, when you register, make sure to use promo code MARKETINGBOOK and they'll knock $100 off your ticket price. $100. Think about it. That's $100 you can spend buying both of us drinks once you get there and still have money left over. I'll have more details after the interview. Today, we welcome Brian Eisenberg to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book he has authored with his brother Jeffrey and Roy H. Williams, Be Like Amazon, Even a Lemonade Stand Can Do It. Brian Eisenberg is a professional marketing keynote speaker and an internationally recognized authority and pioneer in online marketing, improving conversion rates, persuasive content, persona marketing, and helping organizations improve their customer experiences. He's the co-author of the Wall Street Journal, Business Week, USA Today, and New York Times best-selling books, Call to Action, Waiting for Your Cat to Bark, Always Be Testing, and Buyer Legends. Buyer Legends is also the name of the company Brian co-founded with his brother Jeffrey. He has been a featured expert by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, CNN, Forrester Research, and many, many other organizations, and serves as an advisory board member of several venture capital-backed startup companies. Brian, congratulations on Be Like Amazon, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm excited to be here. So this book was recommended during an interview by a previous guest on the Marketing Book Podcast, none other than Rebecca Lieb, author of Content, The Atomic Particle of Marketing, The Definitive Guide to Content Marketing Strategy. So you got a whole army of people out there putting in the good words for you. Well, loved loved Rebecca's book as well. And Rebecca was actually among my first editors ever when I first started writing for Clixie back in the early 2000s. So yeah, oh, we, wow. we, we go back a really long time together. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Before we start to talk about Be Like Amazon, I just wanted to ask two things about two previous books because I know listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast will be interested. And in a nutshell, can you explain the premise behind the book and its title, Waiting for Your Cat to Bark? persuading customers when they ignore marketing. 
Okay, so do you want the marketing story or do you want the, the actual story behind it? <laughs> L- the lesson, the, the concept, the idea. Okay, well, so well, I'll kind of combine them both because it'll kind of make sense. You're already over-delivering, Brian. I love it. Okay, well, we had come up with that title for a presentation we were doing way before the book ever came out. And when Call to Action hit the New York Times bestseller list, we got contacted by six different publishers wanting to publish our next book. Nice problem they, to have. <laughs> a nice problem. Yeah, they all promising great big advances and all of that. So we finally we found settled on, on a publisher. And the problem was we had a, they loved the title and they fell in love with it. They wanted to publish that book. But Jeffrey and I didn't know exactly what the story of the book was going to be. <laughs> so we so we we went back and spent a weekend in a hotel in in, uh, in Long Island and just started chatting about it and and finally realized that you know what we really wanted to get across was that and remember this is back in 2005 that customers are uh, in control of the relationship today you know social media was just really starting to to take off at that time and that you know they cared about the experience and we brought it back to the lessons of uh, of Pavlov which is where a lot of the basics of advertising and marketing really got its origins which is you know if if brands ring the bell of marketing customers will respond and what we were saying is you know what if Pavlov would have done his experiments with cats as opposed to dogs which are a lot more like today's customers. They're fickle. They don't always want to pay attention. They don't quite have the attention span or, or care to love you as much as you think they do. And a lot of people would say the cats want to kill their owners anyway. So Exactly. So then when you start putting that together, you, you've got to treat them a little bit differently, right? And so that was the that was the premise of that book. But yeah, it was only after like, you know, sitting in that hotel probably for about twelve hours until we finally figured out a, a narrative arc that worked with the title. Well, you, you suffer for your art, and the readers appreciate that. So, you also in the book talk about persuasion architecture. Can you share with the listener what that's all about? Yeah, that was a process we we had developed in the you know early you know part of the of the decade you know two thousand two two thousand three, and it was a process that we since enhanced and, and coming into our last couple of books. That took a whole bunch of months, but the basic premise is that you, you know the, a customer experience can't happen by accident. Uh, decisions get made by all kinds of people in your organization because things haven't been clarified, things haven't been spelled out, and you, you've got to plan for persuasion. You've got to put in all those elements. You've got to plan for word of mouth. You've got to budget it in. It's not going to happen by accident. I mean, it does occasionally. Right. But but when you really take the time to worry about every single detail in the experience, it's when the magic happens. Mm-hmm. And we've had a number of other books on the podcast about, you know, engineering that customer experience. And it really is. I don't know if there's any more powerful marketing than that, but it's it deals with the whole organization and it's it's difficult to do. But there are companies that are doing it well. And it's, it's really interesting to see how it's all starting to become more important. Well, I think it's it's fascinating, you know, and, and, and it kind of brings us to today of, of the current book, right? Be like Amazon, which is, you know, Amazon is an interesting beast in the term in terms of like history of marketing. And and the reason being is when you think about the typical organization and and, and building a brand, there have been very few companies that have built their companies off of what we, we call transactional customers. You know, you sell at the lowest price and you just capture customers. You know, they 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 had to do more traditional relationship or, or bonding efforts to, to, to engage your customers and to, and to build their loyalty. Amazon started as that low-cost provider, and 
what they did is they got so good at executing on the customer experience, getting the product to you one time. You know, if you had a problem with the product, they would take care of it, right? All those kinds of things that they've developed this tremendous loyalty. And of course, when they launched their prime program, you know, now, you know, there's anywhere between 70 to 85 million, depending on which analyst you believe customers who are brand loyalists, which basically converts to about 60% of, of the American households. And, and that's just unprecedented for a company. And it's, and it's all based on their execution of customer experience to, to every little detail. And obviously, we can go into a lot of the example details of, of things they've done that just are, you know, common, but but remarkable in the way they execute on them. Yeah, and also there's this Amazon effect that raises the, everyone's expectations for service. So they're, they're leading the way there. But before we get into what you call the four pillars, I wanted to mention that this book is different from any other book that I've had on the on the Marketing Book Podcast, and it was reminded me a little bit of the structure of the book, Who Moved My Cheese? Completely different message, but it was a story. And I was wondering if you could explain the setting of the book with the two main characters and Poobah and Sunshine and what they're doing. Basically, explain the setting. Yeah, so, you know, we start off with a road trip, and uh, Poobah is the uh, older, wiser mentor, and, and Sunshine is in a business. And we learned that he's uh, started with a big fortune, and it's slowly shrinking. So, obviously, he's some kind of entrepreneur, and, you know, he's possibly struggling with growth or with achieving, you know, what, what he hopes to achieve. And we're listening to this conversation of these business lessons from Kodak and Walmart to, you know, everyday companies of, you know, jewelers to HVAC companies to 1-800-GOT-JUNK and and how they basically use the same principles that Amazon has used to turn themselves into these high growth companies. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about principles. I'd like to talk about unifying principles. And you say that uh, a mission statement is propaganda and unifying principles are an operating system. Please explain. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. Today, I actually was just sharing an article I wrote, you know, someone had asked me, what's the first thing I do when I look at uh, a site to to evaluate? And I said, you know, one of the first things I do, especially on e-commerce site is I want to see what they're talking about as their unique value proposition, right? And, And how they're standing out. And I sort of failed to mention that it's not the words that people say, but it's the actions that demonstrate their beliefs, right? And that you can say all you want. And I, and I think this is, this is what Amazon has done so, so successfully and, and, and should trouble every other organization. There is no question that Amazon believes, and Jeff Bezos was quoted in the Everything Store, as saying that he wanted to be Earth's most customer-centric company. And, you know, if you've ever watched an interview with Jeff Bezos, you know, he's not the warm, fuzzy guy. So that's not what he's meaning by customer centric. It's just that he wants to be obsessed over this experience. And it's not an easy thing to do. In fact, Bain did a study several years ago where they asked executives whether they felt they were customer centric as the organizations. And 80 percent of the executives said, oh, absolutely, we're customer centric. But when they asked those same customers of those organizations, whether they believe that organization was customer centric, only 8% of them believe that. <laughs> Quite a gap. So the words that they believe that, yes, we're being customer-centric, it's, it's all there. But it's kind of like saying, oh, yeah, United? Yeah, you're, um, we're customer-centric. <laughs> They're we probably saying it too, friendly, yeah. Uh, friendly skies. Yeah, let me beat you up a little bit and show you how friendly we are. Yeah. 
Yeah, a lot of lip service going on there as it relates to that. But I think it has to do more with actions than than words. In the book, there's something that comes up over and over and over. And I would like you to explain what you mean when you say to look beyond the data about a company performance and see the data that reveals your customer's reality. Yeah, this this is a tough one for so many organizations. Well, but 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 Amazon's doing it. Yeah, Amazon's Amazon's doing a great job of it. You know, I was the I was the found the, the co-founder and the chairman emeritus of the Web Analytics Association, now the Digital Analytics Association. So, I, you know, we started very early, not from the the data side of it. Like, I'm not a data junkie, right? But we love data for what it was able to enlighten us as to what the customers were doing, right? What they thought, how they behaved. And the challenge with most organizations is they they, they navel gaze at data. Right. And, and, and they and they use it as kind of like, you know, points on the scoreboard without realizing, hey, I can score points and still not be great. OK. And the difference is and, and I'll give you a, a great example of this. We're uh, we're working currently with a very high end. Jeweler, they sell watches, you know, premium, premium watches, and their goal was to basically get back to customers within 48 hours if they got an inquiry off their website. And we, we talk about expectations, right? You know, they're in the heart of Silicon Valley. And, you know, we explained to them, I said, you know, Amazon could get you anything you order within a half an hour to your door. And you're telling me you can't get a salesperson to respond back to an inquiry in, in less than 48 hours. And they looked at us and they're like, what, what do you mean? And the problem is that they were looking at their at their internal data, right? They were looking at how they operate instead of saying, well, what's the reality of the customer? What are they expecting? And so what Amazon does, and you know, Jeff Bezos you know, talks about how a lot of the people who join Amazon are kind of shocked that they don't really worry about stock price. They don't really worry about a lot of the standard performance metrics. What they do is they're, they're based on, on focusing, on, like if you're a category manager at Amazon, you have to look at four key metrics, and those four key metrics, and, and, and I challenge you, right, when you think of brand Amazon, right, what does it mean to you, right? I want, you, I want the audience to think about that, and I want, I want you to respond. So when you think about Amazon, what do you think of? I think that I'm going to get good reviews. I'm probably going to get a good price. They're going to do what they say they're going to do. A great experience. Yeah, good great crisis. experience. I know this sounds crazy, but I, I ordered a wood chipper and shredder through Amazon last week. It arrived yesterday. It was all beaten up. It was <laughs> severely damaged. I went inside. I said, take it back. Just went on their website, and somebody's coming to pick it up today, and they're sending me another one. It arrives in just a couple days. <laughs> okay? So I had this feeling that they were going to take care of it. And I hope yeah. they do, and they probably will. Yep. So we, we, we've got two of their prime things. You, you mentioned price. You, me, you, you mentioned, obviously, the customer experience. They definitely take care of that. You also probably had a lot of choices in 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 the wood chippers that you were looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could have right. gone to a local store. There were some other great websites that I looked at. I did some research on. I compared the prices. Actually, the price on Amazon was a little bit lower. But you know what? I wanted to order from them anyway just because I had a feeling that if something went wrong, they were going to take care of it. You actually just hit on the four things their category managers are responsible for. So the category manager for wood chipper or, or for that, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, equipment, right. They have to look at four things. They have to look at price. They need to be between five and 13% cheaper than their top five competitors. Not, all, uh, not every product, but on all the key products, right. The most competitive products. That's really, they focus on. In fact, they've built 
software that automates that process, and they change the price up to 6 million times a day. Okay. Secondly, they focus in on selection. They want to have five times the selection of their top five competitors. So if you have seven items, competitor X, they're going to work on having 35 because they want you to have more options, right? Yeah. From an, from an availability point of view, they want to make sure the product's in stock and they can get it to you as fast as possible, right? And they turn over their inventory 27 times a year on millions and millions of products. Put them in perspective, Walmart turns their inventory over about seven times, okay? So incredible way that they do that. And then lastly, it's that customer satisfaction, right? They always outrank the top stores year after year after year because they take care of the issues. And they know that if they take care of those inputs, what matters to you, that's what that matters to the brand, that over the long term, everything will work out because you know what? you're going to remember that time the wood chipper went wrong. So the next time you have to order something and it has a little bit more margin than the other one, you're like, I'm not even going to worry about it because they just, they're going to take care of me. Yeah. And and that's customer reality. What matters to the customer? I feel like if you ignore everything else, like, you know, sales and all that, it's like, I'm not saying to completely ignore it, but it's like, that can't be your only focus. You've got to focus on things that matter to your customer over the long term if you want to succeed over the long term. Yeah. C- could you just explain the concept of a controllable input? When I read that, I thought that that's something that's possibly misunderstood by a lot of people. Yeah. Well, well that's what, those, those are those four p- metrics that those category managers are. Can they control price? Absolutely. They can set the price. They can change it all the time. They control that input. Right. They know that's part of the equation to get people to buy. The selection, that's something they can control. They can work with vendors to make sure that they have enough selection before they're, you know, before compared to their competitors. Very easy to control. From their availability, you know, they're using all kinds of algorithms and 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 obviously they're they're building more and more warehouses to get that network infrastructure in place to get it to you and be in the right place, right? Because you know, they're not gonna worry about stocking snow shovels here in Austin, Texas, right? It makes no sense to do that. Right. So they can control that. And then lastly, they know they can control all the elements of the customer experience. So one of my favorite examples of customer experience is Jeff Bezos talks about how the experience doesn't end when the package gets delivered to you, but when you're actually using it. And so they're one of the few companies that have ever focused on what's called frustration free packaging. So when I ordered a Rubik's Cube from one of the leading toy uh, retailers and I ordered one from Amazon, the difference is the way the boxes came. So first of all, the Amazon box comes in the standard box that you see Amazon ship you with their with their packing tape. And of course, their packing tape is is pretty unique. And obviously, there are people who obsess over that packing tape. So that one, even my eight-year-old son can rip it open, right? But it's secure enough that it doesn't open up, right? It's just kind of like this paper kind of tape. Really interesting. Where the other retailer basically had a plain white box, no branding on it whatsoever, with plastic tape over it, and didn't say anything. And then, of course, I had to get one of those box cutters just to open it up. Right. Okay. Then once I opened up the box, the regular retailer had this clamshell packaging that, again, I had to get a bo- one of those you know box cutters to kind of open it up and you know make sure I didn't slice open my hand. Yeah, but <laughs> it starts to get dangerous. Yeah, and but Amazon went ahead and they had it in a paper container that just opened up, and I was playing with a Rubik's cube in seconds. Right, and that's the difference of just being like, again, architecting that persuasion, right. Of, of really understanding how every detail in the experience matters. You know what? Not having to hassle with clamshells and, 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 you know, standard plastic tape and all, it's, it's way different than when I can just rip it open, open the box and I'm playing. 
So, Brian, every story has a villain. Explain for the listener what are TLBs and marshmallow eaters. There was a great study, and, and, they, and they keep doing it, where they put kids in a room and they tell them, go ahead, and if you sit here for a little while, we're going to put a marshmallow in front of you, and if you don't eat it, we'll reward you with another one when we come back. And they do this study, and they do this study year after year, and, and what they find is that there you know, are a handful of kids who can delay their, their instant gratification. Great entrepreneurs are really exceptional at delaying gratification. It's, you know, when we talk about overnight successes as entrepreneurs, it's because you know, all of a sudden it just really happened, but it took years of wait until it finally got there. And unfortunately, uh, and we see this a lot in, in, the, in, the, you know, in retail where that's getting beaten up so badly today is you know, when the, a lot of the uh, aggregation happened and you, know, you, you had people buying up retailers and it, they really got so focused in on stock prices and, and on quarterly results that they forgot that they had to make the transition to keep up with their customers. And, and that takes investment and focus in on, on long term and delay that gratification. They just focused on short term profits quarter after quarter and, and, and it hurt them. By the way, an, another great example of this, and I, and I think this is an example a lot of people can, can really relate to, you know, the four pillars is really just like another operating system. And I, I like to compare it to, and you know, again, I've been, I've been involved in, in the web since the very early days, but I don't know if you remember when, when you know, BlackBerry was really popular and everyone's saying, okay, when's the year of mobile, when's the year of mobile, when's the year of mobile? And all of a sudden, 10 years ago, the iPhone came out and the world changed like in a moment. And it was just a whole change of going from a BlackBerry operating system to an iOS operating system. And that's really what's happened to the world of business today. Jeff Bezos is operating in the latest iOS operating system, and most retailers and many other businesses who are TLBs are focusing on on Blackberries. And you know, it's great for now, but it's not gonna it's not really gonna last over the long term. And the the beautiful thing about the iOS operating system is all of a sudden, you know, they sent you an update and you that I mean I still have my original iPad and it's still operating. Now explain what TLB stands for. Twitchy little bastards. I love it. There's a few lines like that in, in, in the book. It's so accurate. And, you know, the short term, the quick hit, everybody's looking for that easy button as it relates to starting, growing, marketing a business. So you mentioned the four pillars. Let's talk about those. It's customer centricity, continuous optimization, culture of innovation, and corporate agility. So customer centricity, you, you, you touched on it earlier. And you, you, know, you, you talked about Bezos not being a, a warm and fuzzy guy. It's not about customer love. It's about learning what the customer wants and then giving it to them. And you told a very interesting story about how the Vanderbilt fortune was built on customer centricity. And Southwest, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. It's, it's, really, it's coming back to the customer reality data. What does the customer want and how can you meet that need? And all that Amazon has done much better than just about everybody else. And, 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 and let's, let's, let's put this in context against the two big boys, right? Walmart to Amazon, okay? And I want everybody to kind of go back and sit for a minute and think about, okay, when Jeff Bezos started in 1995, okay, Walmart was and still is way bigger than Amazon is today in terms of retail dollars and all that. It's just like – but he had the audacity to believe, right? That if he just focused in on solving the problem for the customer, right, and getting better at it than Walmart did, because Walmart, with all their data, 
knew where products were and how much revenue they can generate by squeezing a box, a, you know, an eighth of an inch and how much more revenue that would generate and what products have and what stores and all of that. But Amazon focused in on understanding to that individual customer what matters. They tied everything back to a unique identifier. This is the concept of one-to-one -one marketing. This is nothing new, right? It's just how he applied it and how he put it into an operating system that, for one, when we talk about in the book, how he's been able to take his organization, not just scale up, but become the world's oldest startup where all, all the company is still that agile because most of the time we just break it as we put in management and procedures uh, and noise to stand in the way of, of being that customer centric. Yeah, and, and because I mentioned the Vanderbilts, you explained that there were boats that would take people, I guess, from Manhattan over to Staten Island. So you never knew when they were going and they would sit there and wait until the boat filled up. And people just wanted to be able to get from one side to the other reliably. So he, I guess like every hour or at very specific times, he said, I'm leaving even if the boat's empty. And from that uh, started the, the whole Vanderbilt fortune. Exactly. And, and you know, the Southwest started with the exact same principle. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about continuous optimization. Talk about maybe mention again the 800 got junk, but there was one line in that section that just jumped out at me. You said the big fish are not eating the small fish. The fast fish are eating the slow. Yeah. You, you know, continuous optimization is obviously near and dear to my heart. You know, we, we, my brother and I started the first conversion rate optimization agency, you know, online conversion rate optimization agency in, in, in 1998 before people even were thinking about conversion rates. It was all about, you know, new economy and the sock puppets and, and driving traffic and eyeballs and very few people really cared about conversion rates back then. It's kind of it's kind of weird to think about it today. You, you did it before it was cool. Before way before it was cool, and the the challenge was that you know when we first looked at the world, we was like, okay, you know, you could do all this cool testing online. You can change things and see how customers respond. And you know, we changed some wording, we changed this, and we changed some imagery, and all of a sudden we we get some tremendous results. Like one of my favorite examples is you know we were working with Patrick Byrne, the CEO of Overstock.com. We made one change to a graphic on the VHS and DVD pages. This is how old ago went, and that one graphic on the top of the page counted for twenty five million dollars in increase in revenue. Okay. And a lot of people think about testing as, okay, you know, and optimization as, okay, well, you know, you, you change buttons and headlines and offers. And, but that's really not where it's, its basis is. It's, it's really in, in looking at everything that you're doing and, and finessing and, and, and refining operations so that you can keep delivering better value to your customers. It's never being satisfied with how good you are. And it's the same kind of thing I actually teach to my son. My son's, you know, just turned 12 years old. You know, he, he has dreams of being a major league, you know, uh, uh, baseball player. And, you know, he took the summer off just to focus in on going to the gym and getting strong and working with a speed and, and, and power coach. And, you know, meanwhile, at 11 years old, he was already throwing at 65 miles an hour. But the, but the focus is, and, he, and, and by the way, by August, he wants to be at 70. Uh-huh. And he's already gotten an offer from University of Texas baseball yeah. team. Yeah. <laughs> We haven't gotten that far yet, but 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 his but his mindset is, you know what, be better today than you were yesterday, and and just ingraining that into them. And it's like I think that's the hard part for for a lot of businesses. You know, it's like okay, you have a great idea, you launch it, you you start putting procedures in place to operationalize it, to scale it, right, to to manage it, but then you don't realize, okay, well, 
you know, what if another business wants to come along and put you out of business? And one of the things I found common is that, you know, businesses that basically are looking for ways to disrupt themselves continuously, right? How do they can put themselves out of business are the ones that succeed over the long term. Mm -hmm. Talk about how Kodak didn't do it and what they should have done. Yeah. You know, we talked about early in the book, you know, Kodak was actually the first company to invent the digital camera. They invented the digital camera in 1976. And the CEO of the company, you know, made the the big error uh, and couldn't get out of his own way and, and realized that they were just in the film business. They're not in the business of capturing memories. Didn't matter how they did it. And they could have basically every phone in the world today that's taking pictures could have been, you know, uh, paying Kodak for some of that technology. But instead, they, they, they just couldn't pivot. They couldn't create a company inside of themselves to, to start marketing and selling digital cameras and finding ways to make money from it while the film business was dying. Yeah, you talk about Sears and a GM, just uh, one story after another. I mean, it's, it's almost simple to explain, but when you're dealing with these large organizations and their myopic thing, like there's one expression you had, linear no-threshold thinking at General Motors, where the, the, they just can't understand. <laughs> the emperor has no clothes at some point. Right, the watering the soup. That, it, it, yeah, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's a whole new world of thinking. The world has gotten faster, more connected, and we need to operate that way. We need a better operating system. And we can't just water down the soup. We can never be complacent because it's so easy. It's like, you know, especially when we're working with SaaS companies, I always like to tell them, so you know, at the end of the day, whatever features you build in, somebody in, you know, across the globe can duplicate those features in, you know, three to six months. So the software alone is never going to differentiate you. Got to find ways to stand out and, and continuously optimize. And when we, we first started our agency, we worked with almost every virtual conferencing company out there, you know, the WebExes, the GoToMeetings and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, think about all the companies that do that today, all the people who are, you know, from, from Facebook to, I mean, everybody has a way to connect people through video online today yeah you know if you were one of those companies and you focused in on okay you know small improvements and not figuring out new ways to connect people online right you got left behind you know and, and so we've talked about the culture of innovation the last one is the corporate agility and very interesting you said explain what you mean when you say caring and humility lead to corporate agility yeah this is this is the fact that again right Things can always be better, and you've got to be willing to take suggestions from you know from the boardroom down to the stockroom to, to your customers. You know Jeff Bezos is famously known for you know reading his emails and, and sending them off to people in the company with a big question mark because he's gotten an idea from somebody. Um, I've actually got a few for him that I want to send after the, going through the, pub, the new publishing experience with the book. We still don't have our audio book live, and part of it's the way Amazon does their processes towards vendors. They're way better at customer point of view than from the vendor point of view. That's a whole whole separate discussion. But, you know, it, it, it comes from, you know, always caring to be better today than you were yesterday. What, what, can, what can we improve on, right? And never being satisfied with it. And it, look, it's, it, it takes a lot of humility to say, you know, I'm not perfect. I never will be perfect, but I'm going to keep trying. Yeah, and there wasn't a lot of that when you talk about think inside twenty years, GM's share going from sixty to twenty percent. Exactly, their market share, and also I think you told there was one other mention of how an article had been written about the work environment at Amazon, 
And Jeff Bezos then shared it with every employee and said, I want everyone to read this, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, there was, there was a scathing review about how difficult it is to work on Amazon. And, and look, you know, I'm sure, and I've had friends who've worked there. It is a, not an environment for everyone, right? It's a startup in a mega corporation. If you think about it, right? It, 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 there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of businesses inside of this, you know, it's the Borg. I mean, really, that's, that, that's the kind of the way to, to, to think about it. But they're also acting very independently. And it's cutthroat and it's, it's always moving and you're like operating on quicksand all the time. And, you know, people wrote about how difficult the work environment was. And he said, look, you know what, this is not the Amazon that I thought it was. And if, if you're seeing things like what's going on in, the, in this article, uh, please let me know. And he worked real hard to address it. And it was like, you know, that took, took a lot of humility. Yes. You know, that's a growing pain, but it's saying, hey, we care. and We're going to try to figure out how to make things better. Yeah. So, you know, when, when all is said and done, what keeps companies from building on the same four pillars that are obviously working well for Amazon or even a, a number of the smaller businesses you talk about in the book? You know, I, th- there's definitely a number of things that keep them going. I think number one is, you know, uh, companies are really focused in num- primarily today on the you know, the urgent, not the important, right? They know things are, are keeping them busy. They're struggling with it. They're trying to figure out how to, how to do things. And so, you, you know, changing and you know, and, and sitting down and updating your operating system is, is not an easy thing to do, but there are four key things that sta- really stand in the way of, uh, of, uh, of installing the four pillars, which instead of customer centricity, everyone's focused in on the organization, right? Yep. It's, you know, org charts and, you know, titles, and, and that really becomes the, the, the focus on, and, and it's those internal metrics that everyone's worried about. The second one is, you know, people are fighting to, to keep their, their, their fiefdoms, right? And then basically maintain the status quo, right? And so that's why there's, there's no continuous optimization. They focus in on their competitors as opposed to focusing in on keeping ahead of their customers. So they're lacking the innovation. And then corporate agility really has to do about teams working together. And one of my favorite examples of this, and I urge everybody to kind of do a quick search online, you can find uh, 1-800-GOT-JUNK and they do these morning huddles, 15-minute huddles where the whole organization talks about each other. And if you're an organization that's, that's overwhelmed with CC and BCC emails, you know, it's because people are trying to CYA, right? You know, and, and it's all about you know, misplaced accountability instead of how do we help you get crap done? I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, you know Amazon has a propensity of uh, let's, let's make decisions and do things. And if we break it, that's okay. We'll figure out how to fix it later. Right. Okay. You know, it's, it's just a different way of operating. And that's where great metrics come in. It's like, okay, you know, if we, if we break something, we can see it in the metrics pretty quickly. But if you don't have your, your, you know, your fingers on, on that kind of a data, you're, yeah, you're going to struggle. And, and, and by the way, it's not that you have to do a complete reboot. You know, you can, you can patch up sections at a time. We always like to say the first place we want to make the push is on customers' interest me, right? Stop being so focused on your organization. Let's focus in on how to improve the customer experience and do it little bit by little bit every day. And all the rest of it will sort of follow as you, as you start going through the process. Yeah. One other question I wanted to ask you to, to talk about was explain the concept of wanting to do business with people who believe what you believe. This, this whole idea about belief, and you even tied it to the, the start with why. It's such a great concept. Could you, could you just talk about that for a moment? Yeah, you know, my brother is doing a presentation today in in, in front of uh, 350 retailers in New York City. 
Um, and of course, it won't be today when the listeners hear it, but he's going to be sharing an example. My, my daughter loves the company Lush. I don't know if, if you've heard of it, but Lush does these, you know, you know, handmade bath bombs and facial scrubs. And uh, I mean, really, it, it, the stores are a, a, an amazing experience. And uh, you go into their stores and they actually have these big signs in there. That's a we believe, right? You know, thinking about, you know, taking back from Simon Sinek, you know, famous TED Talk and all that. And one of my, and here's like, we believe words like fresh and organic have an honest meaning beyond marketing, right? We believe in happy people uh, making happy soap, putting our faces on our products and making our moms proud. But what, one of the things that they have in there is we believe our products are good value, that we should make a profit. And that the customer is always right. And so they hand pack the products in the store, right? These little containers, you know, and so you buy, you know, face mask and they, they hand pack it. So here a few months ago, my daughter goes in and, you know, she's bought them before and she shared pictures of, you know, how nicely packed some of these things are. And I've seen friends, you know, go ahead and share pictures of how beautiful the, the inside of the package are. They're hand packed and, and, and smooth on top. And so my daughter went with a friend of hers. They, they, they bought a couple of facial masks and she wanted to open up the smell that she's on her way home about 20 minutes away from the store. And she opens up the package and she goes to smell it and she looks at it and it looks like someone's fingers have been inside of it and mushed it all around. And of course, this is something she has to put on her face. And, and so she's like, oh, yeah, I don't know about this. So she, you know, she calls up the store and she asked them, said, you know, hey, I just opened this up. We just left the store. This is what happened. And the person on the phone says, hey, no problem. You know, come back to the store. We'll replace it. You know, n- n- not an issue. She gets back to the store. She hands them the package. Person looks at it and says, oh, no, this is normal. No problem. And won't replace it for her. So while they talk about how the customer is always right, the actions Lee differently. And so, you know, maybe the person on the phone, you know, was, was a really good employee, but the person she met when she went back to the store with that ugly package, right. With the looked like their fingers were smeared in it. Maybe it was a less than average employee on a less than average day. And maybe that's the person who actually packed it and was just frustrated that he would have to get it returned and left her feeling dissatisfied. Whereas when you go to Costco and you return something, I don't think I've ever had a problem. Or Amazon. Yeah, every employee <laughs> seems to know this is the deal. This is actually what we believe in <laughs> and we're going to do. Or one of my favorite legends, right? I, I, I use this example all the time. There's a retailer that there's a guy who comes into their store with snow tires, but all they sell is clothing, but they return his money anyway. Oh, right. Was that Nordstrom? Bingo, right? <laughs> And that legendary story, and this is why we call our company Buyer Legends, right? Our that legendary story tells everybody in the organization real clearly how seriously they take that concept of the customer's always right. That we take returns no matter what, yeah. right? That's not just the words behind it. They demonstrated the actions that they believe it. And that is what goes a long way today versus just lip service. Yep. So, Brian, if, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Wow, if they can only take one thing. I didn't say I only ask fair questions. Yeah, you know, I think they need to really reevaluate what it means to truly deliver a great customer experience and, and how they're going to do that and, and to really examine their beliefs on why they're in business. And I think if, if they just focus on that, 
you know, they can really, you know, make a difference in, in not only their customers' lives, but obviously in, in their own. That's a good answer, Brian. <laughs> you thought you weren't going to have one. Having read the book, I think that that's a great summary. Let me ask you, what books have inspired your working career? Well, the, uh, uh, this is a, this is a kind of a full circle story. So in 2000, uh, 2001, I picked up Roy Williams, who was our co-author with my brother and I on this book, Be Like Amazon, Even a Lemonade Stand Can Do It. He had written a trilogy of business book of the year, you know, Wall Street Journal, uh, Business, you know, Business Week bestsellers called the Wizard of Ads Trilogy. And those books really helped set us a course on where we were headed and what we want to achieve. And Roy, you know, we contacted him after we read that book. And, and, and I encourage a lot of people who read great books, go out and, and reach out to those authors who, who touch you. I think it's a, it's a great way to, you know, just to, to, to develop a relationship and, 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 and continue that learning. And Roy's become a, a good friend and a mentor, and he helped us put together this book that we couldn't have done without him. So, I mean, th- by far, that would, that would have to be one of my best books. Terrific. And that answer has all kinds of symmetry, bringing us back to him. And we'll make sure to link to his books and his website and your show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to seeing come out? Um, there's, there's a bunch of them. So, you know, uh, one, of, one of my favorites recently is Mark Schaefer's Known. I think he did a, a really fabulous job with that one. I've got a few friends that uh, I've been kind of working on and, 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 and nudging them a little bit. And they kind of got inspired after reading my book, you know, uh, folks like Brian Carter's working one and Dwayne Forrester and, uh, Nathaniel, uh, schooler is also working one. So th- there's a bunch of them. Just get, just keep an eye on. I think one of the things that chapter 11 of my book has really helped people have a better understanding of what a business book might want to look like today, as opposed to some of the more academic books that we've seen over the last few years. Yes, absolutely. And you know what? I asked that same question to Rebecca Lieb and that's when she mentioned your book. So you see how it all works? Now it, I'm gonna it be, all works. I'm going to be chasing those guys down too. So how best can listeners learn more about you and the book? Well, you know, they can find me everywhere on social media. You know, I'm on, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, all of the above. Of course, you can find me at buyerlegends.com and brianeisenberg.com. They can also go to belikeamazon.com. There's stuff there about the book. There's a free evaluation where people can go ahead and see where they rank according to the four pillars. And, and it's um, confidential too. And it's completely confidential. Uh, there's there's uh, a lot of great information. And by the way, that, that, that study that we're using to analyze where you are with the four pillars is something that actually has been uh, out in, in, in the marketplace for over 13 years uh, with thousands of companies uh, using it. This is not something like, you know, we, we, we just invented yesterday. You know, th- this is basically books like Jim Collins, Good to Great has talked about. And, you know, Jeff Bezos just to managed to leverage technology in a new way by, in implementing this. That's really in a couple of u- unique styles to bring it to him. But companies like GE Healthcare have been using this. And so I encourage everybody to kind of get a benchmark where they are and then learn how they can get better at each of the four pillars and start being a lot more like Amazon. Yeah, I would encourage the listeners to go to that belikeamazon.com slash four pillars. You'll see it when you go to belikeamazon.com. But that's a that's a, a terrific thing that you're offering there. The name of the book is Be Like Amazon. Even a lemonade stand can do it. The authors are Jeffrey and Brian Eisenberg with Roy H. Williams. Brian, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. It was my honor. Really, thank you so much for, for having me.
And that closes the book on episode 137 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And to register for Content Marketing World, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com. Click on the Content Marketing World banner so they'll know I sent you. And then for the very best price, enter promo code MARKETINGBOOK. And if you have any feedback on the show, I would love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we welcome the CEO and founder of Hootsuite, Ryan Holmes, to talk about his new book, The $4 Billion Tweet, a guide for getting leaders off the social sidelines. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.